This podcast is part of the No Phony Podcast Network, the home of independent awesomeness. Do the novelty songs of the 1980s live on in the comedy bands of today? Slip on your ninja gi and let's find out. Once again, it's time for the idiots. An objective defense of the 80s. From a couple of idiots. Welcome back to another episode of The Idiots, an objective defense of 1980s pop culture from a couple of novelties. A couple of novelties? Hmm. Novelty acts? Novelty acts, yeah. Yeah, Sure, okay. Hey, my name is Will, and joining me as always is my friend and my co-host, Ray. Here we go again. Yes, thank goodness for that, right? Yep. Hey, today on the show, we are going to be talking about novelty songs from the 1980s. You know, those funny, quirky songs that... You know, as soon as you say that, there's something comes to mind. Uh, And a little bit later, we're going to be speaking to one half of an act right now that is, I don't know, like the most popular, I don't want to say novelty act because they're not really novelty, but comedy bands, I suppose, right? Comedy bands. That's right now. But their music sounds like songs straight out of the 1980s. Only only most of them wouldn't get on the radio because of some of the material (laughs) and the words. But they're so good that in 2018, they had the number two song on Billboard Rock, beating out Imagine Dragons. They've had the number one Billboard comedy album twice. Of course, I'm talking about Ninja Sex Party, because a little bit later, we'll be speaking with with, uh, one half of the duo when Ninja Dr. Brian Wecht joins us. Um, But before we get into any of that, don't forget to like and subscribe, and rate, and review The Idiots, because it's a very easy gesture to help other people find out about the show, and the more people that listen to the show, the more guests we can get that you want to hear from. And you know what else you need to do? You got to go over to T Public. Oh, yeah. Because you know what happens on a windy day when you're trying to, like, read something outside, right? Yeah, it kind of blows away, I guess, or tries to. All your to. papers start start to blow away. Yes. But if you had coffee cups oh. with The Idiots logo on That's it- true. You could put the coffee cups right on top of the papers. Yeah, I've got one right here. It's got some weight to it. Yeah, that it definitely hold paper down in a windstorm. It's got some heft. Mm-hmm. Well, sounds like our guest's name. Got some wecked to it. <laughs> okay, hey, let's get caught up on 80s news. I feel like we haven't done this. I, I say this to you like every week. Well, it's been two yeah, weeks. Yeah, this has been two weeks. Yeah, January, we sort of slowed down because people listening, people listen less in January too, it turns out. But we're coming back with a vengeance. I mean, that's right. For, for the first time, people are calling us and asking us if we would like to have a certain 80s icon on our show. Right? Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Wow. This yeah, is, well, making progress. I think it's the first time that's happened. And then it happened twice in one week. All right. I don't know if I'll leave any in it. That Who it, cares? It sounds, it sounds kind of <laughs> arrogant. Yeah. Do, do we have earned earn in, in right to be arrogant at this point at all? I don't know. Maybe we have. I'll have to really think th- through uh, that one to see if we can start doing that. Okay. <laughs> All right. Get back to me on that All after right. you analyze it. Hmm. All right. Hey, in 80s news this week. All right. Here we go. Here's another potential reboot. In uh, announcing his uh, retirement from action movies, Liam Neeson told People Magazine that he's been approached by Seth MacFarlane and Paramount Studios to possibly resurrect the Naked Gun films. Ugh. <laughs> that can only end badly. <laughs> well, I guess. Oh my god! <laughs> I guess then, to his credit, 
Uh, Neeson told uh, people, quote, either it'll finish my career or bring it in another direction. I honestly don't know, end quote. So I guess you know, Ray. <laughs> I do know, because does he seem funny? Well, I don't, hmm. I mean, Leslie Nielsen was, you know, obviously, as you know, was in the serious films before he, you know, made found another career as this comedic actor. Uh, so in that sense, maybe he has that possibility. And he's worked with McFarlane before on uh, A Million Di- Ways to Die in the West. He was in Ted 2. Yeah, yeah, but was he funny in those? Yeah. Leslie Nielsen's a one of a kind. It's yep. just not something you can copy. I, I just I just think this is a bad idea for him. Yeah. Uh, he should yeah. go make uh, something else. Go make Gangs of New York Part 2 or something like that. Go, go do something else. Yeah. Uh, Seth MacFarlane seems to have a lot of faith, with, faith in him, however, because Seth MacFarlane also once commented that he would love to do a Naked Gun-type film with uh, Liam Neeson, saying, quote, generally with dramatic actors, they do kind of like the idea of coming in and doing a comedy to show they can do comedy. Liam is great with comedy. As the straight man, yeah. <laughs> Yeah, I don't know. I agree with you. And those movies even themselves are so unique, like a lightning in the bottle kind of, I don't know, all the right things. And O.J. Simpson that made it just perfect. Who are you going to get now that's going to be a future murderer? Oh, I'm sure there's tons of them mm. in Hollywood. Yeah. That's not hard to find. It's harder to find somebody to replace Leslie Nielsen. Mm, that's true. That's true. Very good. Okay. Hey, in other 80s news, we've got a whole lot of updates on Ghostbusters Afterlife. First... Some bad news. Ghostbusters Afterlife has uh, been pushed back. Sony has once again shifted the release dates for a number of different titles, including the film, one of the films that we've been waiting for. It will now not be released until November 11th, 2021. Absolutely ridiculous at this point. I remember the beginning of 2020 when we were so, it must have been January, right? Because by February and March, things were going downhill already. We were so excited. We had Top Gun, we had Bill and Ted, Ghostbusters coming to America. It's just going to be uh, as many new 80s films or sequels coming out this year as it seems you could get new 80s films back in, you know, the 1980s. Yeah, it was like a whole bucket full of 80s stuff and we were all excited. And, and now I'm just sitting here going, how are you going to keep pushing this thing back? Come on. Yeah. I, I understand that you don't want to disappoint people. You want it to be in the theater because I, I'm pretty sure there's going to be a Rick Moranis scene in there, oh, even wait, if it's wait, in the post-credits. Wait, why do you say that? I just got a good feeling about mm, it. Interesting. Okay. Well, I know you've been psychic on a number of different things. You predicted a lot of things that happened with Bill and Ted as far as how they were going to move the dates. And, I don't and know, Star Wars. And Star Wars. Yeah, George Lucas's return to Lucasfilm. Yeah. All right. Hey. I'm saying fingers fingers crossed. He's, he's, they want this to happen in a the theater so badly. Yeah. I mean, all these film companies do, but okay. Hey, in other Ghostbusters Afterlife news, because like I said, there's a few different stories here to be talked about. Jason Reitman revealed to Empire that uh, when his father, legendary film director, producer Ivan Reitman, who directed the first Ghostbusters, after uh, Ivan had seen uh, the new reboot that's directed by Jason, his son, he was so proud, he cried. Wow. Now... (laughs) He could have also been crying me because it's just terrible. It's like, how do I tell my son he ruined my movies? I I don't know how to take that one. That could just be, that just could be that it looks good or it could be really good. I don't know. Yeah. He, uh, Jason said that his father, quote, cried and said, I'm so proud to be your father. You see, the problem with that is, is anytime a dad says, my son is so good at something. Yeah. 
Like they're exaggerating all the time. Like mm. my son should be a pro golfer. He's so good. Mm-hmm. He's the best I've ever seen at golf. Tiger Woods, his dad said once that, well, yeah, one guy was right. <laughs> <laughs> How many other guys are wrong on that s- subject? You yeah. know, like my son is the greatest baseball player since Ted Williams. Yeah. <laughs> I wrote a song on the baseball and threw it at him, and he read it back to me as it came at him. <laughs> um, no, I, yeah, I take your point. You're right. I mean, as parents tend to be prouder of their children than other people are. Exactly. Uh, so I'd imagine Ivan Reitman could even, you know, fall victim to that, mm-hmm. fall prey to that. Um, so, yeah, I guess it tells us a little, bit, a little about the film. Now, we did talk about this once upon a time when uh, Jason had an interview, I want to say it was over a year ago now, but that um, he is looking to make, although the first films had a sort of, you know, sort of sly sense of humor, he wants to make sure he brings the frights too. Because, as he says, uh, the the film was his sort of entree into horror. Now, of course, he was a kid, a little kid, Mm -hmm. when the films were being made and came out, so, you know, it might not have taken too much to scare him. I don't remember being terribly frightened when I saw the films at, you know, 13 years old. Um, he did tell a story, though, that when he was at a Director's Guild meeting recently, he happened to be sitting next to Steven Spielberg. That could be the end of the story. That's just cool enough as it is. Yeah. But he said, uh, he told when he told Spielberg that he was working on Ghostbusters, Spielberg said out of nowhere, library ghost, top 10 scares of all time. Get her! I guess Spielberg doesn't watch a lot of horror movies, then. <laughs> That'd be my guess. Hey, that's the producer of Poltergeist you're talking about. That's the producer of Gremlins. Which both have better scare scenes in them. Yeah, I don't know. That, I think, I, I want to say the library ghost probably scared me at 13, but it also, because it was kind of a jump scare. You didn't expect that little old lady to turn into a monster in a, you know, just a snap there. Yeah, but the problem is, is it's a it's a comedy moment. Yeah. Is they're approaching her, they're arguing about who's going to go talk to her, and then their reaction to it. Yeah. So I, I wouldn't say that's a big jump scare moment. Well, you were a man who was hardened on horror films at an early age, starting with Frankenstein, the black and white those films, those universal films from like the what, 40s or 50s? 30s, yeah. 30s. 30s, 40s, 50s, 60s. Yeah, we showed uh, Frankenstein at my first birthday party at my house, so. So you were tough. My, fir- my first grade, first grade birthday yep. party. Mm-hmm. I th- I've said that on the show yeah. before. And though. you thought it was a comedy. Yeah, that's right. You're, you're, they got a, you got a projector from the school yeah. or a library. Library. Yep, yeah. the library. I remember that. Okay, hey, in other Ghostbusters Afterlife news, uh, Ernie Hudson, while talking to Living Life Fearless... He uh, was promoting his film Redemption Day, but he was asked some questions about Ghostbusters. He was asked whether the film is a direct sequel, a reboot, or a combination of both. And he said, it's not a reboot. Because when you say reboot, which is the third movie, the one with the ladies, that I actually liked a lot. Now, are you quoting him? Is yes. that what he said? Yes, Or yes. are you saying you liked it a lot? Oh, I see what you're getting at. No, he's... <laughs> all right, but we'll check this out. Okay, yes, right. yes. No, he said, I'm quoting him. He says, yes, he did like it a lot, but he does also go on to say that it was a, another version of what we did already did. And I think that was a mistake. Well, obviously he's not going to come out and bash it because he wants to be a part of the Ghostbusters universe still. And you can't go bashing things right now. That's just not how life works. Well, he said he thinks it was a mistake. Did you not hear me say that part? But he just said he liked it. Oh yeah. Well, you could do both. Which The, the correct thing should have been to say that movie was garbage. <laughs> it should never have been made. Garbage. The The writing was poor. Mm. The character development was bad. And then, then you just stop talking. You're Ernie Hudson. You can do that. Yeah. Well, he says that, uh, you know, his issue with was it was with that quote, it just felt like a retelling of the same story, which automatically causes comparison 
comparisons that you really don't need to be doing. So, all right, well, hey, I liked it, but for me, it was, it just wasn't the Ghostbusters vibe, you know, and I don't know, some of those Paul Feig movies that I like, that I like, and then there's others that feel like that movie, which was having the actors just improvise a bunch of stuff and then trying to string it together in some kind of story. All right, but here's the most important part of the interview. The final question, will Rick Moranis be making an appearance? What did he say? He said, quote, I think the studios probably want to hold that one. I love Rick, but yeah, I'll let them share that. I knew it. What? Already? I'm just reading this this article now. It's like you're creating reality right now. It's right before my eyes. <laughs> I've been saying this, though, since they talked about this and saying he wasn't going to be in it. I knew that they were going to put him in it. There's no way he's not in this movie. Yep. Even if it's in the post-credit scene. I hope it's not that. I don't even care, man. He's so good. Even if he did that, it would be worth it. Yeah. I, I, I'd hope to see, have him see, you know, be able to like, enjoy him longer. Like what, what was he? He was a, a salesman of some sort. He was an accountant in the first an one. An accountant. Then he so, was a lawyer in the second yeah. one. <laughs> <laughs> so... <laughs> So in the post-credit scene, what could he possibly upgrade his oh, job yeah. to? He's, for he's the, a doctor. He's got to be operating on somebody. <laughs> he's he's in the hospital or something. Yeah. Oh, Oper- what if he's a president of the United States? Ah, oh, that would be awesome. Oh, I mean, he's had thirty years, you know. Or the mayor of New York. Oh yes, yeah. And this time, unlike having the mayor be against them, you know, at first he's just all supportive of them. Yeah. Okay. So let's say maybe Rick Moranis is the mayor of this town that they're in. Oh, Oklahoma. And at the end of the movie, he gives them the key to the city. Okay. Yeah. All right. Let's go with that one. I love this. Yeah. He's had a lot of years to keep moving up the ranks. You're right. Every, he kept advancing. (laughs) (laughs) What's the natural uh, evolution? Hmm. Very cool. Politician. Yeah. Yeah. Of course. That's a stretch, but we'll see. Well, yeah. If they ever let us see it. Well, you know, it is crazy how they're able to keep this a secret at all. If it does seem like Ernie's revealing that more like, I mean, he could have said no to your point, you know, he could just, he's Ernie Hudson. He could have just said no, especially if it's true. It does seem like right. Rick's in it in some capacity, but how do they keep that a secret? The, the cast of Mandalorian didn't know Luke was in that episode. Well, that's so. true. That's true. They didn't know until they saw it. Yeah. You know, this leads me to believe that maybe people were getting too close and that yeah. attack on Rick Moranis was a trick. <laughs> <laughs> to distract to, us from to distract us from him yep. being in Ghostbusters because we were like, oh my god, somebody beat up Rick Moranis. This is mm. bullshit. See now, I thought you were going to say maybe that attack was they had to take out Rick Moranis because he might leak that he was just <laughs> shot a scene in Ghostbusters. <laughs> uh, He's the source. They got to take him out. All right, hey, that was eighties news. Dun, 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 dun. Okay, hey, let's talk about novelty songs from the nineteen eighties. I thought it was kind of cool that you and I, you know, we. I think we've said this before, we often prepare separately and then we compare notes after, if we compare them at all, because a lot of times we just (laughs) sort of. (laughs) A lot of times we do our our prep and we don't even tell each other what the hell we did. I think that's the best because then, you know, we're surprising each other. Um, So yeah, if we seem surprised at all on the show, it's because we really are. (laughs) We're not that good at acting. Yeah, Um, but this one we actually did cooperate. Well, yeah, and it turns out we had a lot of the same ideas. Mm -hmm. So you know, novelty songs from the 1980s. And novelty songs certainly weren't in, created, invented in the 1980s. But as with everything else in the 19, uh, that happened during the decade, 
we had a way of refining, honing, improving on what had come from prior generations. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So do we need to explain what a novelty song is? Uh, you know what? That's that's kind of a weird topic because a novelty song is kind of a song that just has a weird topic, I guess, yep. or is extremely clever. Sure. I, I don't know any other way to put it. Yeah. Yeah. But then you have other songs that are just dumb as shit. <laughs> but there's still a novelty song. Right. So hmm. like for this show, we're we're not doing Weird Al. Right. Weird Al's his own creation. He has novelty comedy parody. He's right. getting his own show. So yes. we're not talking Weird Al today. So so just get it out of your head, people. Yes. We're waiting for Weird Al to come on the show so we can actually talk to him about it. Yeah. But like in the eighties, a novelty song, it just it was more comedy related, I guess. Yeah. Most often they were funny. Uh, certainly quirky, weird. Like today, I don't think they, they're even called novelty songs anymore. I think you would have more just comedy. Right. Like when we're talking about Ninja Sex Party, we'll be talking to Brian later. As I mentioned, their albums chart on the comedy albums. Yeah. Although although that one charted on the rock albums too. I, I, and also, I guess it would be, they have so many songs. Mm. Oh, that's, yeah. Ninja Sex Party has so many that it becomes not a novelty, it becomes comedy. Yeah, that's true. Now, I think, you know, thinking about the ones that we're going to talk about, I think there's just one exception of a gentleman on here who could be, you know, who had a ton of novelty songs. <laughs> yeah, I agree with that. I know um, exactly who you're referring to yeah. without even you saying it. So. Yeah. And, yeah. Why don't we just get him out of the way first then? Okay, cool. So, of course, we're talking about the great uh, novelty song writer, singer, composer, uh, Ray Stevens, who, in addition to being a novelty uh, song uh, you know, performer, was also a straight-up legit songwriter as well and had tr- you know hits on the country charts. And I think that's why we can consider these novelty songs, mm. because he did have a regular gig. Yeah. So these were fun side projects for him, which is why I think we were able to both put him on the novelty list of the 80s. So that we could have chosen any number of Ray Stevens novelty songs because he had more than one that came out in the 1980s and was, you know, memorable. Yeah. But, you know, while we're talking about him being both a legitimate songwriter and performer and novelty songwriter performer, um, Mississippi Squirrel Revival is an interesting one. The song came out in 1984, uh, written and performed by Ray Stevens. <laughs> it's, do you want to explain what it's about? Yeah, these two kids go to church yep. and they got a squirrel with them. Yeah, of course. And the squirrel gets loose and it starts running up people's pant legs and yep. biting their <laughs> And the, the dude starts screaming and jumping around and, and the people in the church think he's having like a religious experience. Yeah. <laughs> so it's, a, it, it's just a really fun song and the video really adds to the, the experience. Yep. Originally, I think this is a cool one. When we're talking about uh, again this sort of dichotomy of his his career, is that originally Mississippi Squirrel Revival was not intended to be a single, but then it was released uh, rushed. It was rushed out because radio stations started playing it anyway, and it became so popular that uh, Stevens thought to capitalize on the popularity of it that they would release it as a single, and that doing so, his hope was this would reestablish him as a novelty artist. Because he had just had several albums, mostly uh, comprised of serious, you know, more serious material. Mm-hmm. And he, it was Stevens who believed that novelty music was experiencing a revival in the 1980s. Well, for him it was. Yeah. Well, I mean, a, a lot of these songs are representative of that fact that I guess he's probably right. Yeah. Well, I mean, he had so many novelty songs across decades. Yeah. So for him, oh, I, I don't see. think it ever, ever went away, but for, yeah. I think he thought everyone else was going to catch up to him. Yeah. 
The song was uh, so popular. In fact, it reached number 20 on the U.S. Billboard Hot Country Singles. So there you go. It's ties to country music are, you know, strong. It's funny. I can name a lot of Ray Stevens songs, yep. but I cannot name a single serious country song he did. I told you my favorite Ray Stevens <laughs> song is not a comedy song. It's his cover of Misty, which he did like a, I want to say it's like a slow bluegrass kind of version of it. Yeah. Oh, it's so good. It's like the best version of Misty. Oh, all right. I'll, I'll have to check oh, it out. It's like banjos playing and stuff. Oh, it's great. Yeah. Now, the other Ray Stevens song that we both brought up uh, to share was <laughs> I'm My Own Grandpa from 1987. Yeah. This one's hilarious. I, I cannot listen to this and not laugh out loud. It's impossible. <laughs> it is. Even knowing it's, where it's going, it doesn't it's matter. It's so goddamn ridiculous that it's fun. Yeah. Now, originally the song, it's not an original song by Ray Stevens. Originally it was written by Dwight Latham and Mo Jaffe and performed by Lonzo and Oscar back way back in 1947. And a number of people have covered it since. Um, Ray Stevens' version is, of course, the one that uh, Ray and I are familiar with. Can you <laughs> summarize it in a sentence? You can sum it up like this. Yep. So a bunch of things happen with marriage uh-huh. and kids <laughs> and marriage again to kids. Yep. And then eventually he's his own grandfather. Yeah. But he's also, I, I think, like his own uncle. Yeah, he, on the way, yes. And his own stepdad or something. Yes, right. <laughs> so, and then his dad's like his nephew at one point. Oh. I'm not real sure, but yes, it's a, uh, it's funny. It's, it's hard to follow, but I'm mm-hmm. sure he did the figuring all that. You know, whoever yeah. wrote it figured it all right. out and made it happen. So, but he delivers it so well. Uh, it turns out uh, in 2004, the genealogy blog proved that the song. You know, we're talking about the original version, the version of the song, right? Was derived from a Mark Twain anecdote, but that Mark Twain seems to have borrowed this anecdote from an actual story published first in American newspapers in March of 1822. Uh, they actually, at that time, had copied it from a, a London uh, publication, hmm. and it turns out the song is actually based on a true story. Is it based on uh, English royalty? (laughs) (laughs) Like all the inbreeding you mean? Yeah. (laughs) Maybe. The story is, and it's not very long, it says, uh, proof that a man may be his own grandfather. There was a widow and her daughter-in-law and a man and his son. The widow married the son and the daughter, the old man. The widow was, therefore, mother to the husband's father. Consequently, grandmother to her own husband. (laughs) They had a son to whom she was great-grandmother. Now, as the son of a great-grandmother must be <laughs> either a grandfather or a great-uncle, the boy was therefore his own grandfather. This was actually the case with a boy at school in Norwich. Wow. All right, hey, here's another one. The Curly Shuffle from 1983, written and performed by Peter Quinn with his band Jump in the Saddle Band. This is an easy one to explain as far as story goes, because there's yeah. just a couple guys going out and doing the Curly Shuffle, right? I mean, Well, this one's fun because the video came out Yep. And it had the Three Stooges in it. Right. So you got to see somebody who we all thought was hilarious yep. growing up. Mm-hmm. Like, I'll watch that crap right now. And I'll laugh the whole time. Yeah. <laughs> Slapstick comedy like that's awesome. Mm-hmm. They do it right. Yeah. Even though you know what they're going to do. Yeah. They do it so well that it's funny. Like, when I see modern slapstick, I don't care for it. Yeah. It, it's like, to me, it's lazy. But to see them do it, because they pretty much invented slapstick for the most part on a large scale and um just they're slapping each other in the video and and they're poking each other in the eyes but the song is like upbeat and you're like yeah Yeah. this is this is is so much fun yeah 
Yeah, of course. Yeah, Three Stooges, Marx Brothers. Uh, who else? Uh, Abbott and Costelli's, you know, old sort of age. Oh, yeah. Folks yeah. that came up, you know, through vaudeville and these different theatrical sort of circuits. Yeah, just hone that ability to be funny using uh, physical comedy. Of course, yes, the song is an homage to uh, Curly Howard, the Curly of the Three Stooges. Um, during the song, Quinn even mimics a number of Curly's Howard's catchphrase, Curly, Curly Howard's catchphrases, which is like the most fun part to sing along with the nyuk, 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 nyuk. Yeah. The, the recording of the song nearly coincided with the Three Stooges receiving their star, finally, on the Hollywood Walk of Fame in August of 1983. At the time, none of the Stooges were still alive. Um, they had passed away uh, years before that. Uh, it peaked at number 15 on the U.S. Billboard charts in early 1984. It was also a minor hit in uh, Australia. As the tune gained popularity, Quinn and his band were signed to Atlantic Records. But the band only released one eponymously titled album. Oh, you didn't groan. All right, good. You, you, you know, you, we're, getting, we're getting you through this, through uh, what they call exposure <laughs> therapy. Yeah. Uh, Atlantic Records wanted them to do a follow-up record, which was to include the tune Shaving Cream. Right? That old mm -hmm, song. Mm -hmm. Because the album, except for Curly Shuffle, the rest of the songs on their only album were covers. But the band, didn't, they hated this idea so much that they recorded the song for Atlantic, but they added some lyrics that mocked the record company. And so Atlantic dropped them from the label. That's usually a great idea. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Like mock the people who are paying you it usually yep. turns out well for people. Well, for them, yeah. It turned out they didn't have a record deal anymore and didn't release a second album. Yeah. There you go. Here's another one. Homecoming Queen's Got a Gun from 1984. Now, you know, I remember we talked about this once before on our like controversial 80s song episode. Yeah. What was shocking to me is we talked about that in November of 2019. Why is that shocking? Did we have a podcast in 2019? Yeah, nah, I think we did. Yeah, yeah we did. Yeah, yeah. Oh, yeah, that I makes got it sense. down here. Oh, yeah. Of course, this song was written and recorded by actor-comedian uh, Julie Brown. Not Downtown Julie Brown, the other one. Mm -hmm. The funny one. And it was released in 1983. It's a satire of Valley Girl culture and a parody of 1950s era teen tragedy songs, which were songs, and during this era, there were a lot of songs about teenagers dying tragically. <laughs> and they were like, you know, I don't know, popular and uh, Apparently that was very romantic back then. Isn't that crazy? If your boyfriend died in a horrible <laughs> car accident, yeah. that was romantic in the 50s. If he died doing a, uh, like a drag but, race. Yeah, it had to be raining in a drag race. Yeah. Ah, <laughs> uh, yeah. Okay, so... Uh, the story about this one is Debbie is, is crowned a homecoming queen. Her best friend is the point of view character singing the song. But Debbie, after being crowned, pulls out a gun and starts killing classmates and teachers at the homecoming parade. So, you know, hilarious, a hilarious comedy song, just like the others we mentioned. Yep. The song took off only after being played on the Dr. Demento show. Who's actually responsible for most of these people's success. Yes, exactly. At the time, one critic said that it was one of the most delightfully silly singles and videos of the past few years. Whereas another critic said, the songs got sicker and more nihilistic. In 1960, a pretty girl wore an itsy-bitsy, teeny-weeny, yellow polka dot bikini. In 1985, a pretty girl grabs a machine gun and does a Rambo on most of the senior class. We talked about this in the other episode that Julie Brown, you know, after Columbine was like, yeah, I probably shouldn't have performed that anymore. But... I think I also recall, and I should have looked this up, on that episode we had learned she was, at some point in the mid-2010s, like 2012 or so, developing a musical, or, or she had staged a musical version of it where she played one of the characters. So she was back up performing it again. I don't think it's a great song. Yeah. I think it's a funny song. Yeah. And I think that was intended to be. Hmm. It was intended to be funny, 
the video is funny. Yep. It's comedy. Yep. It's what is that? Black comedy? Yeah. It's it is what it is. It's not a great vocal performance. Yeah, she's not it's, a great singer. Yeah. She's not a great singer. It is what it is. It's a comedy novelty song. So for her to get, you know, all upset, I compare it to when Anthrax was all upset when uh the anthrax threat was going around. Is that, I don't remember that f- affecting them, but yeah. yeah, right after 9-11, they actually contemplated changing their name because right after 9-11, when the towers got hit, right. um, the anthrax scare from the, the people who died from getting anthrax in the mail, right. they actually contemplated changing their name over that. And then they didn't, which was smart, yeah. Yeah. which she should still perform the song. The song's fine. It's comedy. Uh, if you can't sing about the Titanic, you know, what are you going to talk about? maybe, but the Titanic happened once a hundred years ago. We got a school shooting, you know, except for the pandemic now, which is, you know, we only got half kids at school. We had school shootings like every, literally like every month. Well, not every month, but yeah, they happen quite frequently anymore. Yeah. But. I mean, so frequently that, you know, they're not even national news anymore. True. All right. So here's another one, a little more uh, fun than that uh, dark comedy, that dark humor of Julie Brown. A uh, Pac-Man fever from 1982. It was recorded, uh, Written and recorded by Jerry Buckner and Gary Garcia. Of course, <laughs> what is that? The Pac-Man dance you're doing? No, that's my, guess where they're from. Oh, that's really? My, that's from Akron, Ohio. That's oh, where they're from. No kidding. I didn't catch that. Yeah. Wow. Come on. We've talked about this so many times. Akron just cranks out the musical act. You know, I'm on top of this thing. If they're from Ohio, I yeah. know it. This, this song is sung from the point of view of an arcade goer going to play Pac-Man, which was huge at the time the song came out. Um, it was released in 1981. And by nine, March of 1982, it peaked at number nine on the Billboard Hot 100. And that month, it was certified gold uh, and ultimately sold 1.2 million copies by the end of the year. I had one of them. You did? I did, man. Was it a 45? Yeah, I had the 45. No way. I gave it to my buddy a couple of years ago. He put it in his jukebox. Oh, no kidding. So you had it yeah. until recently. Oh, yeah. Probably about eight years ago, I gave it to him. Wow. So you held on to that thing. No, I had a bunch of them. I love 45s for a long time. Oh, yeah. Yeah, I had a little box full of them, but I didn't have mm-hmm. Pac-Man Fever. Yeah. Uh, a couple of months after the success of Pac-Man Fever, Buckner and Garcia tried again, released the follow-up, Do the Donkey Kong. And they failed. Yeah, they failed. It ranked 103 on the Billboard charts, which, you know, you only care about the top 100. Yeah. Now, I thought this was an interesting tidbit. You know, we said we're not going to talk about Weird Al, rightfully so, because, you know, he's such a, he's a category on all unto himself. But Weird Al recorded a similar song in late 1981 called Pac-Man. It was a uh, parody of uh, the Beatles' Taxman. So you can already hear how it went. It, it yeah. sounds exactly like Taxman, only it's about Pac-Man. Only the song was never released. In- instead, like most of Weird Al's early recordings, like you alluded to a moment ago, it was played on Dr. Demento. Um, and after a few weeks of being played on Dr. Demento's radio show, Demento received a cease and desist letter, letter from the Beatles' <laughs> from the, attorney. That doesn't surprise me at all. And so, of course, he complied and Weird Al complied. They never actually released it as a recording. It wasn't until 2017 that Weird Al was able to release it with clearance from the Beatles. And only after Al had befriended George Harrison's son. All right. So we got the granddaddy of them all coming up now to finish this show, don't we? Yeah. Which one is that? Shut up on your face. Hmm. From 1980. Now, I was surprised you also had this one on your list. It's one of those songs I wouldn't have thought reached Ohio. I, I that's love what I thought. This song. I, I, well, you know why it reached Ohio. Yeah, I don't know because, well, all right. I know why you're going to suggest it. Because he's from Painesville, Ohio. Yeah. So who's the, who's the number one famous guy from Painesville? That'd be Don Shula. 
Oh, really? He's from Ohio too? Yeah. The guy who has the steakhouse? <laughs> the, the guy who coached the, the restaurateur? Yeah. Yes. The, the famous restaurateur, Don Shula. And then he also coached, coached a team in Florida or something, didn't he? Yeah. 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 He spent some time in Miami. Well, okay, so let's 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 back up a moment here. So this song "Shut Up Your Face" from 1980 was written and recorded by Dol- by Joe Dolce. There was also a cover version that was done a year after him by Lou Monti, and Lou Monti is the guy who sang, sang uh, Dominic the Donkey. <laughs> this guy had a bunch of uh, Italian uh, songs on, under his belt, but Joe, Joe Dolce, this was his uh, he was this was his you know rocket ship to fame. Um, it's a song about a rebellious Italian kid having an argument with his his mama. <laughs> really, is yeah. That's the gist of it, man. Dolce described the song as controversial because it was a record that divides people into those who love it and those who hate it. (laughs) (laughs) Man, I'm fine with that because I love this song. Yeah. So so Ray's, of course, you know, mentioned that Dolce's from Painesville, Ohio. He's born to an Italian-American family there. Mm -hmm. Dolce dropped out of Ohio State and began traveling the U.S. following the music scene. Eventually followed his then-wife, who was a dancer, to Australia, but she left him a year later after they moved there, and he was uh, having hard times, struggling to make uh, money. He earned about five bucks a time playing uh, music at, in pubs. That's a lot. <laughs> what, by uh, by 1980s dollars? Yeah. Well, by any local band's standards. Yeah, you're right. You probably got paid in beer only, right? Yeah, pretty much. No actual cash. Mm-hmm. Huh. That, I, it seems like he's got it going on. So, of course, when his song, you know, he, he, he creates this character, has this little show he does with a bunch of different numbers. And at the time, his wife was doing dance numbers in it. But he did a number of different characters, including this one that was this caricature of an Italian person. Um, but finally, this one song, you know, it, it pays off. It, it becomes huge. Yeah. It goes to number one in Australia, New Zealand, Ireland, Canada, a number of different countries, including Fiji. Uh, Belgium, Germany. South Africa, there's a lot of them. It was the eighth biggest hit in the UK in the year 1981 mm-hmm. and really ticked off uh, the synth poppers Ultravox because it kept their uh, classic Vienna from the top spot. Not familiar with that one, but I am familiar with this mm. one. Exactly. Although it's strange that it was only in the US that it didn't, it wasn't in the top 40. It only peaked at uh, number 53. Yeah, that's a, that, that, that boggles my mind. You know, you know what song this one actually reminds me of? What's that? Uh, Hello, Mudda, Hello, Fire. Oh, yeah, okay, yeah. It's got the same vibe as that one, That's which I like show. a lot. Yeah, another novelty song from the past. Mm-hmm. The popularity of his song was only improved after being played on the Dr. Demento show. <laughs> Dude, Dr. Demento had everything figured yeah. out. Now, Joe Dolce tried again. He did have some subsequent sequels that... <laughs> Tried to leverage the success of uh, Shut Up Your Face. In 1983, he reached a low point, finally, with You Touch On My Car, I Break On Your Face. <laughs> See, that's funny. That's a funny title. And the following year, he had a song, Pizza, Pizza. I'm in love of the pizza all of the time. Yeah, he deserves a lot more credit. He really does. Uh, in a 2002 article with The Guardian, Dolce said that those uh, follow-up songs were a mistake. Let's put him on the list. I want to talk oh, to this right, guy. Oh, all right, yeah. He's still around. Apparently, he's living off the money from this song. I'm going to write Mia. 
shut up of your face song. All right. So first of all, he was Italian American. So he got some yeah. kind of wiggle room there, even though it was a sort of grotesque character of an Italian <laughs> character. So now you're of some kind of uh, what Irish and German. I, I'm American, sir. All right. Okay. So what is the American, the American character you can caricature in a song? Eh, I don't know um, yet. I think I'll come up with that later. And no matter what you do, you're going to offend somebody. You know that. Oh, somebody's getting offended. It's going to be bad. It's going to be wrong. But that'll drive up sales probably. But yeah, usually that drives up sales. You put the explicit label on it. Yeah. So, Okay, so hey, that's all of the novelty songs we can fit in for today. Uh, in a moment, we'll be right back with a huge comedy music star. I mean, we could say novelty, but I mean, it transcends that, I think, right? By what we were sort of talking about it. Because like you said, these guys have had hit after hit after hit. Uh, when one half of Ninja Sex Party joins us in a moment, Mr. Brian Wecht. guest today was destined for success regardless of his ultimate career. After years of academia, the law of attraction drew our guest's attention from science books to those of the musical variety. Our guest found additional success in his other lifelong passion, music and comedy. Along with his writing partner, Dan Avidan, our guest formed Ninja Sex Party, a comedy band with an unmistakable 1980s sound. In the 11 years since their inception, Ninja Sex Party has released five original albums, two of which ranked number one on the Billboard comedy charts, and their cover albums, which are loving tributes to hit songs from the 1980s, earned them a number two spot on 2018's Billboard Top 200 beating out Imagine Dragons. Please welcome to the show, Brian Wecht. Hey, Brian. Hi. How you doing? Hi. Thanks so much for having me. I'm great. So we've had on a bunch of artists and a bunch of academics before. We've never had one that was both. <laughs> of course, we'll get into it, but uh, not only are you a you know musical, musical star at this point, but also a former professor of physics, non nonetheless. Yeah. I've got to say, I only first found out about your, your iconic group, Ninja Sex Party, because you've got a few, but Ninja Sex Party, about five years ago, my daughter and I were at a comic book convention or, you know, uh, and uh, she got all excited being there. And she said to me, she, at this point, she's, I think, 13 or 14 years old. She says to me, no matter what we do, I have to find some merchandise for my favorite band. Really, what's that? Ninja Sex Party. Immediately, I felt like I had failed as a father somehow. Of course. Yes, that's the goal. Yeah. <laughs> I just told her this story a few minutes before coming on, and she said, oh, I also lear learned to swear from Dan and Brian. Great. Yeah. Good. <laughs> I'm happy. <laughs> so, so speaking of being a kid, what, what, uh, what would you consider yourself uh, as far as uh, generationally eighties kid? Oh yeah, definitely an eighties kid. So I'm, I'm 45, uh, born in 75. And I mean, there's just no way around it. Like, but all my, I mean, yeah, I guess I was a teenager, you know, mostly uh, it kind of evenly split. Right. Yeah. So I turned 15 in 1990. So a lot of the formative early stuff for me was clearly eighties. Although I was a very odd and very nerdy kid. So a lot of the, like, for example, music in the 80s, a lot of that 
I was only listening to significantly after a lot of my eighties pop culture knowledge is, is less musical and more TV and movies. Like as I experienced it at the time, like, you know, I was big into like practicing my, you know, classical piano kind of lessons and concert band and that kind of stuff. Almost all the pop culture music that I absorbed was through Weird Al Mm. early on. (laughs) Like I remember learning most of the song, like any, anything Weird Al parodied with maybe a few exceptions, like beat it or whatever. I'd never heard before. I had to go look up <laughs> the original. That is hilarious. So did you know they were parodies or you, you suddenly hear Michael Jackson's original and you think they, this is a parody of Weird Al. It, well, there were a few, you know, so Weird Al does this thing where he does pastiche, right. On, on, a, on a Weird Al album, he'll have parodies and then, pastiche or style parodies he used to call them and for a long time i you know of course this is i don't need to tell you guys all pre-internet it was kind of a challenge to look up whether an individual song was actually a parody of something that i didn't know or was a weird al original because his originals are amazing too right so i remember uh spending years unsure of if there was some like John Mellencamp song out there that I didn't know, or if he's just very good at doing that style. Wow! And the answer in the case of his first album is the latter. Like yeah. there's a John Mellencamp kind of song, which is not a parody. Right. Right. Wow. Yeah. I was going to ask you, which, uh, you know, so obviously like I alluded to you, uh, your, your life's gone a number of different ways, but have involved having involved science, music and comedy and thinking as a child, you know, which sort of, uh, which spoke to you first, which you connected with first, but it sounds like music and comedy almost simultaneously, maybe. Yeah, I think that's fair. I mean, my definitely was, uh, I, I was exposed to a lot of comedy uh, early on. My parents were big uh, comedy fans. My father, you know, my father was Jewish. I grew up in North Jersey. And so I grew up with all the Mel Brooks and Alan Sherman and, you know, all the classic Jewish comedians that were big during my father's, uh, you know, formative years. Yeah. Uh, I, my, one of my very formative memories is him taking me and my sister to see George Carlin at Ramapo college wow. when I was 11, maybe mm-hmm. 12 which was way too young, way too young to see George Carlin. Uh, so they, my, my parents were not like, especially, you know, they were not hedonistic, you know, crazy, like liberal or whatever. But for whatever reason, when it came to comedy, they were like, yeah, it's all good. Just go watch whatever. Wow. You know, talking yeah. about hearing your, uh, how Weird Al, you connected with Weird Al early and then hearing about this, it almost seems like a very direct path to Ninja Sex Party and Star Bomb and what you're doing today. More so than I would have imagined. Um, and probably because it's sort of the, it seems more like a diversion now that you would ever have done physics and not that that was uh, somehow your first, you know, love. Yeah, well, you know, in, in, in college, I did my, I did a double major. I went to Williams College and did a double major in math and music. And for a while, uh, was gearing towards a career in music and then kind of got diverted into theoretical physics. But for a significant portion of my college years, I was like, I was planning to be a, a, not a comedic musician, but like trying to be a composer. Mm. So that was one career trajectory I was on for a a little while. I guess there's very little opportunities for a comedic physicist. Yeah, although they're increasingly more. (laughs) Uh, (laughs) uh, One thing that was always interesting to me, I lived, uh, I was a professor in London for a few years. 
and they have a straight up like science comedy scene there. Oh. That is a thing. Uh, a friend of mine, Matt Parker, he, like he describes himself as a math standup. Like that's his job. He is a math standup comedian, <laughs> and that is a th- that is a scene. The science comedy thing scene is something that exists in England, and so there is some overlap with uh, science and comedy, although yes, not much. It's, it's kind of like uh, the nerdcore guys. Yeah, that's an amazing scene. Uh, I, I love the stuff that's that has been and is coming out of there. Uh, you know, obviously, between, again, between Indo Sex Party and, and Starbomb, you, a lot of the songs are about, and I think we'll get to the sound of it in a second, but even just subject matter seems to, again, connect to things that you may have enjoyed in the 1980s, like video games, oh yeah, role-playing. Um, were, there, were there other things other than the... Uh, the music and the comedy that you were into in some of these uh, more inner nerdy circles like Ray and myself were into? Well, there's a, there's a lot of kind of the experience of being a nerd uh, just in general that's in those songs, you know, what it's like to feel lonely and not getting a lot of dates mm-hmm. and that kind of stuff. Like the, and the video games are, are definitely a big part of it. I mean, I had a, an NES, a 2600, you know, all the, the early, uh, uh, consoles didn't have an Intellivision, but I really wanted one. Oh yeah, me too. That uh, uh, my next door neighbor had one. I'd go play. I remember there was this game Snafu, where you mm-hmm. had to. It was sort of like a. There were these dragons that were. Uh, it was kind of like mm-hmm. the Tron light cycles, mm-hmm. uh, where you had to uh, carve off different areas. Um, but I really, yeah, I really wanted an Intellivision. Um, so that uh, the also the early PC games like the Apple II. I had an Apple II Plus. Oh me too. And oh yeah. Dude, well, okay. So, what were your favorite games? I gotta ask because yeah. that was very crucial to me. Infocom oh. games were it for me. Hmm. All the Infocom games. Well, some of the games I had were straight up pirated by somebody I know. You know, there's a big thing where people uh-huh. would hack them and then they change the screen where they put their like you know moniker on there or some yep. logo. Oh yeah. Um, but I, I the, my favorite games ultimately were playing probably Dungeons and Dragons games, uh, Wizardry. Pool of Radiance, yep. those type of RPG games. Cool, dude. Pool of Radiance, yes, oh, yeah. absolutely. Pool of, and Eye of the Beholder. Too, yes, right? of course, yes. That was a big one. Yeah. So uh, there was one game I really loved. So after the two plus, we got a two GS. You know, many. I don't know how many years later, four or five or something. Uh, and there was this game, Keith the Thief. Hmm. which was like a kind of an adventure, a little bit RPG. You could cast spells and that sort of thing. I was really into uh, that kind of game and all the Sierra games yes. too, big right. time space quest, right. Manhunter is one. I never hear people talk about, but I love Manhunter. Oh yeah. No, I love those games. We got to do an episode on those games. I would be of little use because I didn't have a computer till 1998. <laughs> I'll be doing a monologue. Oh wow. <laughs> <laughs> So you, you were into RPG games. Were you into actually playing Dungeons and Dragons, uh, sitting down at a table with uh, folks? And I should have been, yeah. but I was too much of a wuss yeah. <laughs> for it. And I was scared of other children my age. <laughs> yeah. And so I didn't have a friend my age who was playing uh, RPGs. Mm. And so I remember going to one D&D game at our local gamer store and being terrified mm. and walking out halfway through because I couldn't handle it. Yeah. So I like I did also I went to in seventh grade. So that would have been 88. There was some con at uh, what was the Paramus Mall that wasn't Paramus oh, Park. Uh, yeah, yeah, I know which one. It's a small, much smaller one. It's the nice one, though. It's the really nice one. Yes. It was really nice back in the day. Yeah, it's. I'm sure if I heard it, I'd remember. But anyway, there was a con there, and I remember 
playing one. <laughs> this is this was the, literally the last D and D game I ever played. I played some game which was like a Monty Hall kind of thing where you're just gathering treasure, and you had to face off against an evil sorcerer or whatever at the end. <laughs> and it was my character versus the sorcerer, and I rolled two d10s and I get a hundred. <laughs> And the dungeon master is like, he was some, I mean, at the time I thought he was like some super old guy. He was probably 22. (laughs) (laughs) And he was just like, uh, uh, the universe explodes and you win, (laughs) which is probably terrible DMing. But if Ray was DME, he would have killed you anyway. He's like, oh, I'm so sorry. That's that's not true. My games are fun. Where he likes if killing you, people off. If you if you ever find yourself in Cleveland and want to try again, let me know. We'll we'll hook you up. I would love to, and I you know I have so many friends now that play D and D regularly, and I just haven't. You know, I have a six year old. Like it's 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 a challenge to get out sometimes. Yeah. I mean, oh, obviously, yeah. especially now, but yeah. I would love to play again. I think it'd be really fun. The way Ray runs his game, it's like this. Hey guys, before we start, you should expect to die. So have another character. That's ready. not true. <laughs> like, oh, crying out loud! The, without the fear of death, the game's not fun. That's, yeah, That's yeah. why I say that. Uh, so by 2009, you've already attended Williams College. Yep. You studied music and physics. Music, yeah. Well, music and math were my majors, and then physics was essentially a. I mean, I, I was a few courses short of a major there, but I took a lot of physics too. And then you you attend UC San Diego, where you get your PhD in particle physics so of course you make the next logical move which in a, on a which a clear path you know destined you're, you're destined for a certain particular career and so you attend the upright citizens brigade uh school in new york there for comedy is that right the the piece that's that's slightly missing there is i started doing some improv in san diego okay. with a theater sports group and that's okay. why i then and actually in between i lived in boston for a few years because i was a postdoc at mit and I was a musical director at the Improv Asylum, which is a big comedy theater in Boston. So I started improv in San Diego and then did comedy and improv in Boston and then got to the UCB uh, in New York. So when you're in San Diego, then is this the first time you're getting this taste of comedy and you're getting some sort of experience or feedback from an audience in a way that you had an experience before that could take you off this otherwise this career path that seems, you know, destined for academia? Yeah, totally. Like I had never, I had been a musician, like in pit orchestras and done like musical theater stuff, not as an actor, but as a musician, yeah. but as a performing comedian, that, that was a hundred percent the first time. And I was barely on stage in San Diego. Generally I was behind the keys. Mm. Yeah. Yeah. What is the role of a, of a musician in improv comedy? It varies depending on like, people have different philosophies, but uh, the one that I like the most is the musician is just there to provide scoring as needed, you know, you're just providing a musical soundtrack to the scene. And if there's a scene where people, you know, it's musical improv and someone needs to break into a song, then you can help spur that or support that uh, as well. So I would do both, which is provide underscoring and then also improvise songs with the, uh, the cast. I see. Wow. That's crazy. Yeah. But some, so what's interesting about at least UCB when I was there was they were very anti-underscoring. Mm-hmm. So I remember uh, showing up to take classes there and saying, hey, I'm a musician. Do you guys ever use musicians? And they were like, not unless it's musical improv. And mm-hmm. that was the answer I got there. So that may have changed you know, since then. Yeah. But 
uh, my theater in Boston theaters, I should say improv Boston, which recently closed, uh, and improv asylum were both, they always had musicians there just providing music as needed, which, which I like a lot. I think it adds a lot. Right. Ah, it's fantastic. Uh, and of course for folks, folks don't need to know, right. That the UCB is at this point, this is a comedy group that started in Chicago by Amy Poehler. That's, that's the person mm-hmm. you mostly know, but Matt Walsh, Matt Besser, who am I forgetting? Ian Roberts. Oh, and Ian Roberts. And then they come to New York and they take over New York in the late nineties. And within a few years, they've got a school and they're, <laughs> and then a few years later, they're like dominating the country in comedy and every sort of, it seems like now comedic actor, you either come out of the groundlings in, in California or UCB in California now yeah. or in New York at, at the UCB. It's pretty, you know, it is the uh, UC San Diego of comedy. Maybe. <laughs> uh, yeah. It's, it became this dominant force. I mean, the real innovation, right. was bringing long form right. Chicago style improv to New York. And then it just, took over i remember seeing when they had their first space in new york which is super tiny oh, just in chelsea on the like 22nd it's like 22nd street or something is like the second floor yeah like their space after that was in the basement in chelsea okay right 26 right. i think yep. um but they had some space which was near i can't remember exactly where it was i think it was still in chelsea i think you're right yeah um, and it was really, really small. It had sort of like a CBGB kind of vibe mm-hmm. where you just walk in this narrow hallway and there was a stage right there. And then you had to walk around the stage to get to the bathrooms. Yeah. So I remember seeing, that was the first time I saw Horatio Sands, oh. who also kind of one of the founders too. I can't remember his exact involvement, uh, but I remember seeing him monologue there and thinking, this guy's amazing. Yeah. Like he was incredible. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, I had seen them also when they first came to New York. It was probably like 98 or 99. Time, yeah. Could never suspect what they would ultimately become. But, um, you know, so of course, every, it seems like the decisions you're making, you know, these different studies, you're going to the best possible place you can for the particular thing you want to learn. You know, it's interesting that, you know, obviously you connected with music and math or science, physics. There does seem to be a, a correlation, right? I mean, I know it's still debated whether or not math helps folks with music and vice versa. They're, you know, you can get sort of both sides. But there seems to be something else where music almost seems to be have a sort of an objective truth to it in a way that math does, where if you play one chord in a certain key, there's only two other chords you're going to go to, you know, one of the two. Mm -hmm. Is there something to you that um, you approach music in a way that you also approach physics or vice versa, you know? Sort of. I mean, I, a lot of my training, I've always been theoretically minded. So I have a lot of training in music theory Mm. and especially specifically jazz theory. So I tend to think about music when I'm writing a song, very like, okay, what are my options? You know, if, like you said, sometimes you're here and then the natural thing to do is go A, B or C and you can kind of feel those out. Uh, So I I do think, I wouldn't say mathematically, but I tend to think pretty rigorously Mm. about how I write music while also allowing lots of room for feel and improvisation. And that's something that I've tried to get better at over the years is for, I remember, uh, so for when I was a grad student in, uh, in San Diego, I was in a jam band there. And I remember one of my bandmates who was a postdoc in uh, molecular biology at the time, really sick guitarist. He was like, dude, you're a great musician, but you need more feel. Mm. And I was like, this is a, this is a great comment. Mm -hmm. So uh, like since then I've tried to, you know, allow the emotional, you know, kind of feel side to, to become a little bit more dominant and, Sometimes it works and sometimes it, it doesn't, but yeah. you know, ultimately the end product always comes down to like, Hey, does this sound good? Does it feel good? And nobody gives a shit 
about how you wrote it. Like it's, you know, <laughs> yes. they don't care if you use math or not. Right. You know, it does, does it sound good? In, in our case, is it fun? Right. So, <laughs> and I, but by, by contrast, my partner in Ninja Sex Party, Danny, he has uh, no theory training mm. and is all feel and just has an innate sense of, of harmony, et cetera. And it works great. It must be like dealing with me on a daily basis because I have no training in anything either. So. <laughs> I was it, does, it makes communication interesting because it's, it's a strength and we like we each have our strengths and weaknesses. And, you know, if I'm trying to communicate what I'm doing to him, like I can't really say the names of notes and right. chords. And that's like he just doesn't know them. And it, that's, I say that not as a negative thing at all because yeah. – like it, he works very, very well and we work well together yeah. with that, but it does make communication sometimes a little yeah. more challenging. Yeah. yeah. I played in bands for years and I can't read music and the other guys would be talking about, you know, triads and whatever and a, you know, <laughs> of course, <laughs> like, yeah. What, what are you playing? Uh, actually I sing, I play guitar, I play bass, play drums, but uh, mostly I consider myself a front man. Cool. Cause that's the, that's the easiest job. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I basically yeah. went to the David Lee Roth school of music. A, a swagger. Yeah. 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 That's yeah. basically what you just, you just do what Dave does. What would Dave do in any situation? And you're good. I remember taking a jazz theory class in, in college and uh, it was like an elective and the instructor's rule was basically no guitarists. He's like, I don't want to deal with them. They don't know what they're talking about. Like, if you want to be a guitarist in my class, you're going to have to show me that you can play a scale and know what the note. And, you know, it's, again, it's not necessarily a negative, but if you're taking a jazz theory class, he wanted to know that, you know, you had like some basic level of musical theory uh, to come in with. And I think in his experience, a lot of guitarists didn't have it. Thinking about your uh, partnership or your, your, your writing collaboration with, with Dan, ultimately you connect through UCB, but my understanding is there's some point, you know, while you're still pursuing a, you know, quote unquote day job, I suppose, uh, at the same time yeah. you're pursuing a musical career, you're, you've, you've, as you mentioned, you're teaching in London and Dan is somewhere in the U.S., what is your collaboration like? You know, I just watched a uh, rocket man, you know, the story, Elton John story, oh, yeah, I saw that. Uh, mm-hmm. seeing how Bernie Taupin would just hand uh, Elton some songs. He'd say, these need music. And he would just, yep. I mean, what, what was your work like? Uh, when we started, we were in the same place in New York and we would just get together and like, usually in a rehearsal room, some rehearsal room in Manhattan somewhere and just try to, you know, hammer out some tunes uh, when we started living in different places. So when I moved to London, Dan moved from New York to LA and, you know, with the goal of making it in the entertainment uh, industry. And then it was just like trading files. I mean, I would write, cause I had a couple of years too, where I wasn't living in New York. I was kind of, I was a postdoc in Michigan and then I would come back and forth cause my wife was still in New York. And, uh, and then I was in Boston for a year. Uh, I get this is all for postdocs as an academic. And then, so when I moved to London, I had had a few years of like trading files back and forth with Dan. And so we would generally, what would happen is I, for a while, I was really assiduous. I was like, I'm writing music every day. It's not all going to be winners, but whatever. Like, I'm just going to try to come up with a verse and a chorus every day. And so speaking of the eighties, one of the reasons that we really settled on an eighties sound is because on my computer, I was doing everything digitally for the music. I could get the synths to sound good. Mm. 
And in a way mm-hmm. I couldn't get, I don't play guitar. So I couldn't get guitars to sound good. I couldn't get horns to sound good. Initially we were trying a lot of different styles. We have like on our first album, we have like a bossa nova. Uh, we have uh, like kind of a slow jam. We have all this stuff, but we hit more on a synth pop sound because I had good synths. And I was like, well, I guess we're really an eighties band because I, I have good synthesizers. Right. Um, <laughs> And so I would come up with this music. I'd send it to him. Sometimes I'd have a title suggestion. Sometimes we'd do title brainstorms all the time. And sometimes he'd say, you know, I want to, this title sounds great. Let's come up with something there. Sometimes he'd have lyrics in mind and he'd send them over and I'd write music to that. But generally speaking, it was music first and then trying to find a song concept that worked well for that. Oh, okay. Sort of, so sort of the opposite of the, you know, the Bernie Toppin, uh, Elton John yeah. workflow. Yeah, very, very much so. And it varied song to song, but generally speaking, sure. it was music first, lyrics second. You know, I, I realize that I may have had something more like your career. Uh, not to say that I'd have the, be the huge success that you are, but if I only also had your courage when I was in my 20s, because I was writing music in theater in New York for a while. Mm-hmm. I was in a sketch comedy group. And then I just, I, I bailed, you know, I just, I, 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 I didn't, I didn't see a possible future. So my day job became the job that I did for, you know, a number of years after that. Yeah. But unlike that, I know that on uh, July 2nd in 2015, you fly back to LA with the intent of just taking a year off from uh, your career as a professor in, in London, which ultimately it's what's well, it's the longest hiatus. I think you've, anyone's probably had uh, from, uh, from the university yeah. of London there. What, what gives you the courage, I guess, or the, you know, the foresight or the fortitude to be able to take that big step? It's a huge step. It was terrifying. And it was honestly for me, well, it was two things. One was my wife was supportive of it. My wife, Rachel, because we had, at that point we had a newborn, mm. uh, our daughter was, uh, just over a year old when we moved back to the States from London. And the other thing was I was convinced I could, so I did some, you know, quote unquote calculation, not actual calculation. I was like, I think things are moving in a good direction to make this sustainable as a career. And the other thing was I knew that if I didn't take the chance, I would really regret it. Like as in regret it forever sort of stuff. And I, I was like, look, I think I have to do this with Rachel's, you know, kind agreement because it really felt like a once in a lifetime opportunity and it worked out in a way I never could have expected, but you know, it was, it, it was terrifying. I went through many, many months of like, you know, cause I'd been a academics is so hard to get to that, that professor job, much less a, in the UK, they don't have tenure, but it was a permanent job. It was the equivalent of tenure. And I had this great job at, at uh, Queen Mary university of London. And I loved my university, my, colleagues were great. You know, you hear about all these academic jobs where the colleagues are horrible and there's all this terrible politics. That was not the case at all. So it was a, it was a great job with people I really liked and uh, leaving it was very, very hard. It wasn't like I was leaving a bad situation, Mm. but I just decided I kind of had to do it and it worked out, (laughs) you know, uh, we got very, very lucky. You know, there was a lot of hard work involved, of course, but a lot of people are working really hard and, you know, I, I, it's all thanks to YouTube really. And Danny's, uh, Danny was part of this gaming channel, Game Grumps, which was a big, big driver of the band because that was a popular channel when he joined, became more popular after he joined. 
and then he could point people to the band. Right. So, you know, in a way I never expected video games because it's a gaming mm-hmm. channel drove the eyeballs towards the band. Right. So we really owe a lot of our success to not just being on YouTube, but gaming on, on YouTube. Right. Because the other thing is you guys know, everyone is a gamer now. Everybody plays video games now, especially sure. uh, in younger demographics. But like it, you know, gaming kind of seems to transcend everything right now. And we really were able to, to benefit from that in a way I never could have expected. Right. You know, and as a result of getting that audience from Game Grumps initially, and obviously you've, you've got a huge following now, you know, even aside from that, but that's how it, as you said, kicked off. You have a number of, I think the majority of your audience is many years younger than you, right? If you look as far as the demo goes. Um, what is that like? I mean, being a middle-aged rock star to, you know, uh, a different generation practically, right? It's, oh, yeah. I mean, you know, we do these cover albums too. And right. I think a lot of our fans who are hearing those songs have not heard them before mm-hmm. like these monster hits from the 80s <laughs> uh, i i know i know for a fact because i see them they're like oh yeah i'd never heard this whatever phil collins song before and i'm like you've never heard <laughs> you know oh, so, sorry we did uh uh sledgehammer and like i was like you don't first of all i'm not sure they had heard of peter gabriel oh. second of all i was like right uh and i was like they never heard of sledgehammer like if you never how could you miss sledgehammer <laughs> right so so what you're saying is is they were just like you were with the weird al songs where they're trying oh, to yes. track down what you guys are doing now that's exactly right yeah full circle huh. yeah totally except uh, these kids have the benefit of the internet and they're not yeah, doing the right. hard work that's right and they're also way cooler than i was no. when i was there <laughs> but yeah it's, I, I love it like it's you know it, it's 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 nice to kind of be in this. So Dan is only a couple years younger than I am. Uh, so we're both eighties kids and, uh, it's cool to be this, like, you know, sort of what's what I'm looking for to be able to turn people on to, to cool stuff that they might not have, uh, otherwise discovered. I feel this on a weekly basis too. I do a podcast, uh, with this woman, Leighton Gray, who is 23 and it's very interesting talking to her because she has, a, a, you know, she's got a, kind of a gamer, like very pop culture, filmic art background. And she knows some things from the 80s, like she's a huge David Lynch fan and knows a lot of the pop culture that I, you know, we grew up with. Yeah. But uh, it's interesting to hear her takes on stuff that she's seeing for the first time. So, I, in, for instance, do you remember Howie Mandel's Do the Watusi? song yes yeah yes mm-hmm. yeah it was a big part of his branding right. for in like 84 or something uh around the it was part of the i think the smells like a glove right uh, right <laughs> and i don't know why i was thinking about this we were talking about it someone said watusi or how Howie mandel and i was like you guys have to see this <laughs> do the watusi music video because it is unimaginable uh so to see a you know someone in their early 20s react to these 80s pop culture ephemera is really fun and interesting. I realize you're doing the work that their parents should have done. Yeah. <laughs> who's, yeah. who's raising these kids? Frank and I raise our kids on 80s pop culture. That's right. I know. Well, as, as, as do I. Right. Uh, 
are largely actually because for my six year old, my covers are the only music of mine she can listen to. You know, it's <laughs> really the, the only music that's not explicitly about having sex. Like it's like, okay, well, you can listen to these covers. So she is frequently in her room. We got her little boombox. She plays our CDs, her our cover CDs in her room and listens to We Built the City and Down Under and all these other big hits that we covered. Yeah. And they're great. They're really fantastic. And folks who, you know, maybe are only familiar with Ninja Sex oh, Party, but love the sound because it's 80s. They just do straight up covers uh, of, and I, I noticed this, that and maybe, well, you could explain why. It does seem like the overwhelming majority of songs on your Under the Covers albums are from the 80s. You've got some other decades in there, but 90% maybe, I don't know. It's like Yeah, I mean, yeah, it, it's uh, 90% 80s. We go a little bit into the 70s sometimes. Yeah. We did a Nights on Broadway by the Bee Gees, for example. Um, and I think maybe once we did a 90s song, maybe. Yeah. But... Mm. There's, a, I mean, a couple of reasons for that. One is these are literally the songs that we loved as kids. So that's why we're covering them. The other is that our backing band, TWRP, has a rule where they will not play a song written after 1992. That's awesome. <laughs> and, I love that rule. And I think that's a completely fair cutoff. You know, thinking about uh, Tupperware Remix Party, your, your house band and studio band. Yep. So you, the, you've had five original, five albums of original music. Uh, the first three, you did the production. You'd also did the music, but uh, after Attitude City, things change. Yep. You bring on Jim Roach as a producer. Now you had yep. uh, TWRP was doing the music. How did your role change, if at all? Um, obviously you're still the driving force behind the music, I would imagine, but now you've got a lot of other folks that uh, are participating in the production of these albums. Yeah. Well, the Roach, the Jim Roach is this incredible producer. He's been a huge addition to the team. So now the songwriting is me and Dan and him. Mm. And really, so the big thing that actually changed is that we were finally writing with a guitarist and we could do all this like real riff based stuff that I, I wasn't good at before because I can't play guitar. So mm. we started writing a few songs that were more, you know, like guitar riff driven. And my role, so basically now it was kind of the same process as before. Jim and I would come up with music. We're all in the room together, me and him and Dan. And Jim and I will come up with the music. And sometimes one of us will bring something into the room to play for the others. And then usually when we have writing days, Jim and I will spend half the day trying stuff out, playing it for Dan. He'll be like, thumbs up, thumbs down, yes, no. Mm. And then when we hit on something we all like, we start writing lyrics to it. Very good. With Twerp, uh, Twerp is, they're, I mean, they're incredible uh, players and just having them be on those instruments is, is amazing. They're not involved in the writing uh, at all, but they often will come up with arrangement ideas or stuff. It's, it's like stuff in the studio uh, more often than not. Right. Uh, but those guys, yeah, they're, they're they're just incredible, incredible musicians. And of course, right, they write their own music, which is I, I absolutely love. They've got kind of a a daft punk and newly discovered recently. They've gone more into like a a yacht rock kind of vibe. Uh, <laughs> but I, their albums are, I think, just phenomenal. And they and they seem so at home. You guys seem so at home together. I mean, even the look and the performance, you know, it just seems like you've always sort of been together. Yeah, it was it was instant simpatico when we mm. met those guys. We we met because our bands both have the, the word party in the name. <laughs> and just on the internet, I mean, Dan, I think, sent me one of their videos. He was like, check these guys out. This is in probably, I don't know, 2014 or something. Uh, and we just struck up a friendship and started trading songs. And actually a big part of the reason we did the first cover album was because we were like, hey, this would be a fun 
like proof of concept that we can work with twerp mm. like let's try a cover album and see how the process goes right so thinking about the songwriting process um i like to spring little games on ray so ray i've got a game i want to play ah, with you jesus christ <laughs> this is gonna be an easy one right i promise great you. all right this is going to be a real easy game, okay? All right. And this, and this is, I introduced this game in our new segment called... Can we keep this between us? I need to lose my teaching job. Um, so I'm going to give you, Ray, yes. two titles oh, here. One of my favorites. We <laughs> must relate to that now, that scene. So we're going to give you two titles here, Ray. One of them is a title of a Ninja Sex Party song. The okay. other one is a title of a paper that Brian co-wrote while he still was a professor at the uh, Queen Mary University of London. Okay, so right. I have to guess if it's a paper or a song. Yeah, that's it. Okay, okay, that sounds easy there enough. There you go. Kinetic mixing at strong coupling, or sex training. Which one is the song? Um, I'm gonna say sex training is the song. That's right. Yeah. <laughs> right, I got another one here for you. Dinosaur laser battle. Okay. Or oblique electroweak parameters S and T for super conformal field theories. Which one is the song? Uh, uh, the first one, the dinosaur. Yeah, you got that one right. All right, yeah. I got, I got one. These last are pretty one. easy so far. You think? Oh, I was. Yeah. All right, here I got one for one left for you. Here's another one. Chiral yeah. ring generating functions in branches of moduli, 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 moduli space, or everybody shut up. I have an erection. Uh, the second one would be the song. That's right. Yo, you're brilliant yeah. at this, and that was. <laughs> Can we keep this between us? I need to lose my teaching job. <laughs> you know, I. Brian, I'm always fascinated by folks that are just so smart that it seems to be they're speaking a different language. I was just for fun. I was reading some of your papers. Holy cow. I can't even read the summary, the abstract of this one and understand what it means. Yeah. Tell me the title. This one is Global Symmetries and N equals 2 hmm. S-U-S-Y. Susie. Susie. Which is short for supersymmetry. Okay. So this is the abstract from Global Symmetries. We prove that N equals two theories that arise by taking N free hyper multiplets and gauging a subgroup of SPN, the non-R global symmetry of a free theory, of course, have a remaining global symmetry, which is a direct sum of unitary, symplectic, and special orthogonal factors. What? Come on, Ray. You know what I'm talking about. I, I, exactly, right? I mean, just Come on, man. It's, it's another language. <laughs> I'm going to stick to the uh, Ninja Sex Party videos because yeah. I understand those a lot better. <laughs> you know, thinking about, uh, you know, you mentioned you, you have your daughter and, and how she can only listen to your cover albums. Has uh, being a father at all influenced uh, the music, the topics um, that uh, you're willing to co-write for Ninja Sex Party? Or any of the bands? Not really. Yeah, not really for 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 NSP or Starbomb. I mean, when it influences, I started a kids band with our producer Jim Roach. So is that, right? that is like so that band's called Go Banana Go, and that you know having a kid was a big influence on that. But right. NSP just kind of keeps staying the course and has not matured uh, at all with my becoming a father. Uh, the thing I did just think about the other day, though, was mm -hmm. my daughter is a big Endo fan. And I have I just realized, like literally last week, I was like, wait a minute. Someday she's going to listen to these songs I wrote about Mario and realize <laughs> what situations I put her poor, poor <laughs> uh, video game character, which is her mm. beloved Mario. Yes. And uh, I just hope I hope she's not too young when she finds those songs. You know, I just realized your daughter, and this will be uh, karma, right? Your daughter will learn how to swear just like my daughter did from you and Dan. 
from my marriage. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Although yeah, uh, me and her mother are doing a great job teaching her how to swear yeah. by ourselves. But yeah. <laughs> Got it covered. Just like an 80s nice. father would. Exactly. Yep. All right. Hey, Brian, we, we've taken up a lot of your time. Certainly appreciate uh, talking to you today. It's really wonderful to see an 80s kid like yourself and a New Jersey boy, too. Oh, yeah. And making it out there, creating new 80s styled songs and continuing to cover the best songs from that decade. Uh, Brian, thank you so much for your time today. Thank you. This was this was so much fun. Uh, it, hey, that was it's really, really cool. a pleasure. That was to be fun. Here. He's hilarious. Yeah. I had a lot of fun with that one. Yeah, I yeah, I felt like we could just keep going and going. We were, you know, simpatico. We could we could hang out with him sometime, maybe. Yeah, I, I hope he comes be. and plays Dungeons and Dragons with us. Oh yeah. Hey, the offer still stands, Brian. Yeah, it's out there, buddy. Come on, Ray, Ray's going to kill you off. I'm telling you right now. So create, bring two characters. Well. <laughs> So that hey, and earlier we talked about a bunch of novelty songs from the 1980s that were sort of precursors to, uh, you know, Ninja Sex Party and Star Bomb. But what have we proven or have we proven anything today? We have proven oh. beyond a shadow of a doubt. Wow. Confident. That the novelty songs of the 80s yeah. were much more creative than any other decade's novelty songs. <laughs> I wish people could see your gestures. <laughs> You're doing like with each, with each syllable. That's, that's how I sell it to myself, man. And I'll also add to what you said that among those, you know, bands that we should be honoring are those contemporary bands like Ninja Sex Party that have continued in that 1980s tradition and Mm -hmm, sound. mm -hmm. All right. Hey, we will talk to you next time on the 80s. See ya.